why do Christians pick and choose which rules we follow and which we don't? Think about it. Parents tell their kids, the Bible says children obey your parents. And husbands say, Bible says wives submit to your husbands. But they still eat bacon, wear cotton polyester shirts. Even though the Bible also says you shall not eat pigs. And you shall not wear a garment made of two kinds of material. So what's the deal? You know, not, many of us would have an idea how we'd, we'd answer that. We'd say, well, you know, that was the old covenant. And yet many of us still talk about tithing and sanctuaries. Even though that's, old, that's, that's the old covenant. And then there's the Sabbath. Oh. Some of us would say it, it's moved to Sunday. Some would say, no, it's still on Saturday. Others would say, no, that's the old covenant. So there's, there's some confusion, I think we can acknowledge, when it comes to the Old Covenant. You can understand why unbelievers look at us and think, look at how selective they are. How, how hypocritically selective they are with which, which rules they're going to focus on. Now, they emphasize their rules on marriage and sexuality, but look at all these other rules that they ignore. I mean, right now I'm breaking... The law mentioned in Leviticus 19.27 by cutting off the edges of my beard. It's not just those who are admittedly outsiders, though, who, who talk about this apparent inconsistency. You also have those who profess to be Christians who mock this selectivity. So the late Rachel Held Evans wrote a book called A Year of Biblical Womanhood in which she explores these different laws for women found in the Bible. And she attempted to follow those laws in her modern context in order to talk about how Christians should apply the Bible, especially when it comes to women. She wasn't the first to do something like that. There was actually a book that came out earlier by a Jewish man named A.J. Jacobs called uh, The Year of Living Biblically, which actually ended up leading to a TV series by that same name. So she wasn't the first, but in her book, Evans comes to this conclusion. She says, for those who count the Bible as sacred, the question when interpreting and applying the Bible to our lives is not, will we pick and choose? But rather, how will we pick and choose? We are all selective in our reading of Scripture. And so Evans, she has a bone to pick with Christians who try to keep applying what Peter and Paul said about marriage. Uh, but are we being as selective or selective in the way that Rachel Held Evans is kind of implying. You know, is this just based on our personal preferences? How do we justify abandoning some of the laws found in the Old Testament, especially with what, what's said about God's law? I mean, I read this morning from Psalm 19, where David says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. If the law of the Lord is perfect, and that's a reference to the Mosaic law, why would it ever change? Why would God's rules change? Why would God tell us that certain rules or certain foods are clean? Only to have Jesus come along and say all foods are clean. Like he does in Mark 7.19. These are the kinds of questions 
that were especially relevant for Paul as he shared the good news with Gentiles, but never required them to be circumcised or to only eat certain kinds of foods. There were other professing Christians at the time that that they very much disagreed with Paul. You know, they believed that, that nothing had changed when it comes to God's requirements. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, there's forgiveness through Jesus, but that doesn't mean God's requirements have changed. I mean, they would, they would have said, after all, Jesus himself said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So you can understand why Paul takes so much time in, in this letter to the Romans to, as he's laying out what, what the gospel means, for these, these Roman Christians, why he talks so much about the Mosaic Law. He wanted these Roman believers to understand why he ignores laws like circumcision when he shares the gospel to Gentiles. He wasn't being selective, not arbitrarily selective. And so here in Romans 7, he's helping the largely Gentile Roman churches understand the significance of what Jesus has done. How Jesus had fulfilled the law in himself. Up to this point, though, in Romans, Paul's mentioned the Mosaic law a number of times. In Romans 3.20, Paul said that no one will be considered righteous by obeying God's law. The way to be righteous before God is apart from the law. We gain our righteous status by faith in Jesus, he says. In Romans 3.30, Paul says that the uncircumcised and the circumcised are considered righteous on the same basis, by faith alone. So Jesus has removed the distinctions between peoples within the law by his death and resurrection. And and Paul went so far as to say that he was taking the law more seriously than his critics. He was the one that was upholding the law because he recognized what the law truly calls for if you're going to try to be righteous by following those rules. It requires perfect obedience. And that's something no one can or will do. And so only Jesus has perfectly fulfilled all the law's requirements. And Paul's understanding of righteousness by faith, not by obeying the law, it's not overthrowing the law. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's showing us what the law was really pointing to. So Paul even goes on to show that the Mosaic law had never pointed to righteousness by personal achievement. That was never the goal of the law. And he illustrated that with Abraham. Abraham was considered righteous not by following a rule like circumcision, but by faith alone. So the fact that God's promises come by faith and not through the law or through obedience, that was, that was visible from the very beginning. It's not something new that Paul's coming up with now. And when it came to the law and how it impacted God's people, it didn't make them more righteous like they kind of described and thought in his day. Paul says that it actually increased sin in Romans 5.20. See, before God had clearly everyone what he requires of them by the law, people were ignorant in their sin. They were still sinning, but they were ignorant of it. What the law does, when God gave his law, his old covenant people, who were just as sinful as everyone else, they gained this added responsibility. 
Because now he told them exactly what he wanted them to do and not to do. And so their sin wasn't just sin. It was transgression now. It's one thing to do the wrong thing ignorantly. It's another thing when somebody tells you what you do or not what you should do or shouldn't do, and you just completely ignore that and do what you want anyways. So as God instituted his old covenant relationship with Israel, he did that with people who were ruled by sin. So being under the law, while being under sin, did not make them more righteous. It resulted in more sin. That wasn't what the law, what, what, what God was trying to do through the law. But the letter of the law didn't provide life. It killed So this was the best situation for us to see God's grace revealed in Christ, where everything is even more pronounced. And once that grace was revealed, there was a new era, a brand new era. The old era you could describe for God's people as the era of the law. And the new era you could describe as an era of grace. Now, that's not because there wasn't any grace before. But it's because that the the impact of God's grace was not seen in the lives of God's people as a whole. It wasn't poured out on everyone that were among his people. So that only came with Christ. Now that God's, God's grace has been poured out on all of his people, it's not just poured out on his old covenant people, but all different peoples. So Paul's now going on to explain what does it mean that we're not under the Mosaic law? Why doesn't the Mosaic law continue now in this era of grace? That's what he's going to tell us in Romans 7, 1 through 6. He tells us we're no longer under the Mosaic law because we're dead to the law and wed to Christ. That's the main point of these verses. Christians are dead to the Mosaic law and we are wed to Christ. And what Paul's going to do, he's going to explain this in two parts. He's going to first give us the principle that death ends the law's jurisdiction. He does that in the first three verses. And then in verses 4 through 6, he applies that principle. And he says that we are dead to the Mosaic law, and we are now wed to Christ. So you can turn to Romans chapter 7. Again, it's on page 887. Romans 7, page 887, if you're using the Pew Bible. And we're going to listen to Paul as he he helps us understand why this is not just personal preference, why we don't do some laws and do other laws in the Bible. It's not just personal preference why we still eat bacon, wear cotton polyester shirts, shave parts of our beards. But at the same time, what he says here is that we still follow all the commandments that Christ gives us so paul he starts here by laying out this principle in verses one through three the principle is found in verse one it's that death ends the jurisdiction of the law and then in verses two and three he gives an illustration of that looking specifically at the mosaic law and marriage so that little word or though that starts verse one is very important if you want to follow paul's train of thought you need to pay attention to that word if you look back to verse 14 of chapter six you see paul said that Believers are not under law, but under grace. And then he follows that with a question in verse 15. He asked, what then? 
Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And he answers that with this abrupt, may it never be, by no means. And then he starts to explain by asking this question, do you not know? Well, here in Romans 7, 1, he's adding to that answer saying, or do you not know? Still answering that question. In Romans 6, 16 through 23, he was explaining what it means to, not, to, to now be under grace. What it really means. It doesn't mean that you just go on and sin now because you're under grace. It doesn't lead to lawlessness even though you're not under the law or the Mosaic law. So instead what that means, he explained, was you're transferred from your slavery to sin to slavery to God. But since the, in that era, before Christ's coming, was an era that was ruled by sin. And because the law was given in that context, in that era, and it didn't free, it got, or Christ didn't just free us from sin, he also freed us from the law. So that's what Paul's going to explain here. What it means to not be under the law anymore. Notice another word, though, that could get overlooked here in these, these first, this first verse. Paul interrupts his train of thought, and he refers to his readers. He does this a lot. And you may have done this in a conversation before. And you're talking with someone. Maybe you're talking to your spouse. And, and it's about to get real. And, and, and you want to kind of soften the blow. And so you, it's kind of referred to, or you, you, you put a little honey in your words. You, I mean that literally. Just before you're about to say something, you say, honey. And, and then, you, then you go into what you're going to say, because... Why, why do you do that? You realize what I'm about to say is, is going to be shocking or surprising. And so I want to, I want to take a step back and just, just be careful and, and ease this person into it. That's what Paul does. That's how Paul operates. He, he's about to say something that would have been shocking to them. And so he, just, he steps back. He draws them in by saying brothers. Or what he means there is brothers and sisters. That's the way they would have heard it. So he's connecting with them personally. He's making this statement. And then he tells them why he knows that they know what he's about to talk about. That's what he means again when he says, do you not know? He means, you know what I'm about to talk about, okay? And what he's about to talk about is the Mosaic Law. And so he adds, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Now, some people think that means that Paul's talking to Jewish Christians, but that's not necessary. So on the one hand... It's most likely that many of these Gentiles who came to saving faith first, they were what the Jewish people would call God-fearers. So these are Gentiles that were acquainted with what the Jewish people taught about God. They were very interested in it. They believed that it was true, but they weren't ready to do something drastic like circumcision. And so they learned about the law, but they didn't jump completely into it. Likely, those are the people that that, uh, Paul and others first shared the gospel with, who first came to faith. But besides that, we need to understand that the Bible for the early church was the Old Testament. When Paul writes this letter to the Romans, none of the gospels have been recorded. So they're carrying those, those teachings over by word of mouth, but their Bible was the Old Testament. That's what they read from. So a Gentile that came to saving faith, they're immediately being made aware of the Mosaic Law immediately made aware of the things that are in the Bible. So Paul's just talking to believers that he knows you, you're acquainted with this. You know the law. He could count on that. So what exactly was it that he knew they knew? 
They knew that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, there was a Jewish rabbi in the century that followed who said basically the same thing. Rabbi Yohanan said, when a man dies, he is free from the law and the commandments. And he was basing that off of Old Testament scripture. And that's likely something that had been said throughout in Paul's day. This was, this was something that you would understand. It's a pretty, pretty obvious statement, right? When you're dead, the law no longer applies to you. It only applies in the realm of the living. That's why even in American law, you, you don't see someone prosecuting a cadaver. Has anybody ever seen a, a dead body on trial? No, it, once a person dies, any law, including the Mosaic law, has no relevance to him. The, the Mosaic law only has authority over a person while they're living. Now, as obvious as that, as that sounds, Paul now, now draws this out. He, he follows it with an illustration. He says in verse 2, for a, mar- a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. It's pretty straightforward. He goes on in verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the, that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, what Paul actually says In those verses, it's translated two different ways. Lives with another man, marries another man. It's the same idiom both times, and it it comes from the Mosaic law. It's more literally, if she becomes to another man. And it's what he he says both times. Basically, what it means is it it takes place that she belongs to a man in marriage. That's what it's talking about. But that, to someone who knew the Mosaic law, they would recognize that as a description of marriage. The woman is transferred from the authority of her father to the authority of her husband. That's what that's describing. There's an authority structure that 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 description assumes, and it's important for the point Paul's going to make. So Paul's saying that while this, this woman is under the authority structure that she's under with her husband, she couldn't just go off and marry somebody else. She had no right to take herself outside of that authority structure and to place her in another structure of authority. But if her husband died, then that law that bound her to her husband no longer applied. The death of her husband ended the law's jurisdiction when it came to marrying someone else. So she was now free to marry another person. Now, if she had gone off and gotten married to someone else while her husband was still alive, the law deemed her to be an adulteress. She would have committed adultery. She would have committed the seventh broken rather the seventh commandment but if her husband died his death freed her from the authority of the laws regarding marriage so she would no longer those laws would no longer apply to her and in marrying somebody else she would not have committed adultery that's the principle that paul is is now going to apply to these roman believers situation that death ends the law's jurisdiction and here's here's the application we are dead to the law, and we are wed to Christ. That's what he's going to go on to apply. Notice again, he, he begins, though, with the words, my brothers or my brothers and sisters. Again, he's preparing them for what he's about to say. It is a little shocking to hear what this means for the Mosaic law. He tells them, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Now, if you're following along, you might see an inconsistency there in his comparison. It's only an inconsistency 
if you're trying to make this an allegory. So Paul's point again is that, the, that death ends the law's jurisdiction. That's the comparison he's making. It can only rule over you while you're alive. The illustration doesn't focus on the husband, though, who died. Here it's talking about the person who died. We have died. What he does there in the illustration, he's just showing that death impacts the woman who's still living. So what Paul was doing in the illustration, he's just honing in on the impact of death and how it impacts law, how it impacts the Mosaic law. He's not trying to plug Christians into a certain person in his illustration. He's not writing Pilgrim's Progress. He's not making an allegory. So his main point is just how death impacts the authority of the law. And and the application is even more significant than what happens to a woman whose husband dies. Because what Paul's saying here is we died. Not our spouse, not someone else. We died with Christ. And that has changed everything for us. Point that Paul's making against. Believers have died through the body of Christ. That's why he says it that way. That's what he's saying. In chapter 6, Paul talked about the body. The body is, for Paul, the point of contact, in this context at least, the point of contact with the fallen world. He describes our body as dominated by sin. Calls it a body of sin in Romans 6.6. 6. He calls it a mortal body in verse 12 of chapter 6. So our body, that was our old self, our old situation. That changed when Christ entered this fallen world with his own human body. Christ made contact with this fallen world. And Paul's drawing that out with this talk of a body. And he's actually making it emphatic. In Greek it says, the body of the Christ. This is the Messiah we're talking about. Who entered our world. And his death, the Messiah's death, has impacted us. Because our old self. Our pre-conversion body, our pre-conversion existence was crucified along with Christ's body. We died with him at our conversion. And we didn't just die, though. That wasn't the end of the story. That wasn't the main point. There was a goal that God was accomplishing through the death of his son. It was so that, Paul says, believers would belong to another. The same terminology for marriage. We died with Christ, and in so doing, we died with respect to the law, the Mosaic law. So in this case, the law is like the husband. We are under that authoritative rule of the Mosaic law, but a death has occurred. So that authority structure has come to an end. Now, it's not a perfect... Comparison in the sense of plugging people in. Again, it's not an analogy, or it's not, a, it's, it's not an allegory. But the logic remains. Death has ended the law's jurisdiction. Its authority is done through death. So Paul says, we've died with Christ so that we would belong to him. The intended goal of dying with Christ here is that we would be joined to Christ. We would be married to him. As it were, and what he's talking about is that we would be bound to him and under his authority. That's the image that he's he's drawing out. Notice how he puts it, though. He says, "So that you may belong to another, specifically to him who has been raised from the dead." Once again, he's not just connecting us to Christ's death; he's connecting us to Christ's resurrection. 
which in chapter 6 he said was so that we might walk in newness of life. So we have a similar goal here. He says that we are wed to the one who is raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. We've already seen this image of, of bearing fruit. It has to do with the way our behavior produces something, or, our, or sorry, our, our situation produces certain behavior. So the goal of this union was that we would be fruitful in a new way. And I do think there's a nod to one of the purposes of marriage from the very beginning, to be fruitful and multiply. So here, something's changed. If you're, if you're talking about being a member of God's people, as Paul is talking about here, our former spouse, the Mosaic Law, only used his authority to cause us to produce sin, more sin. That was our fruit, the fruit of our former marriage. In our sinful state, being ruled by sin, all the law could do is result in God's people sinning more, more severely. Because they were doing now, under the law, what they knew full well they shouldn't be doing. It was now transgression. So that's why God rescued his people from this situation, so that we'd be joined to Christ, so that we'd be under his authority. And we would produce fruit, not for sin, but for God. That was not possible under that former situation. We could put it this way. We were, not, we, were, we were joined to Christ so that we would not proliferate sin, but that we would spread God's glory. And again, you can see our salvation was not simply to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. God didn't just save you to rescue you from hell. He saved you, he rescued you, so that you would live differently. So that you would live as the bride of Christ. And Paul goes on to explain this in more detail in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, he gives us the situation before Christ, and then in verse 6, the situation after Christ. So in verse 5, he says that our, our circumstances before our salvation in Christ was as while we were living in the flesh. That's how he describes it. In the word flesh, Paul uses lots of different ways. Here, this phrase, in the flesh, he's just talking about our fallen state before Christ, our life under sin's rule. While we were in that state, while we were under sin's rule, our sinful passions, they're said to be aroused by the law. And that's, translations are doing their best to interpret uh, the wording here. The, the literal wording is the passions of the sins which are through the law. You can understand why translations try to smooth that out. The ESV, the NASB, the NIV, they're all trying to smooth that out. The idea is not talking about arousal. It's talking about these sinful passions were at work in our members. That's the main idea. And again, our members points back to, to Romans 6.13, where Paul talked about our different faculties, everything that goes on within us, everything that we use to live, to, to think, to act in our world. That is our members. So here's what Paul's describing here. In our fallen state, we have these sinful desires. These, these desires that pull us towards sin. And under that situation, the desires of God's people, they were pulled towards sin through the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law actually helped pull us towards sin. That wasn't, again, the intention of the law. That's what happens. Well, we'll see this more next week. That's what happens when you're ruled by sin. When God's people are ruled by sin, they're pulled towards sin even more when we're told not to do something. You see that in your kids, right? Don't do that. 
Sometimes that's like telling. I mean, in their thinking, it's like you told them to do it because you told me not to do it. I'm going to do it. That's what our rebellious nature does. When we're ruled by sin, you tell us not to do something, we're going to do it. And so you can see how under that situation, the law worked with our, our, our desires that were pulling us towards sin, so we sinned all the more. And what we did is when we disobeyed, those desires, what they did, they worked to bear fruit for death. Fruit that leads to death, just like Paul said in Romans 6.21. Those desires, with the help of the law, they produce behavior that's worthy of and actually leads to death and its eternal consequences. But now, Paul said, it never gets old to see that change. But now we are released from the law. And the terminology of release there, it has to do with ending the law's power over us. The Mosaic law, law's power came to an end when we died to it. He says, having died to that which held us captive. The law, under the power of sin, was holding us captive. And again, there's a purpose behind this. There's a purpose, or there's a goal that God intended for this death. He said, we died to the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So can you hear that epoch-changing language there, what he's saying there? There's a change from old to new. There's a change from the written code to the Spirit. Under the old covenant, God's law was written out on tablets, on scrolls. But Jeremiah prophesied that one day God was going to write his law on his people's hearts. When Ezekiel said God was going to give his people his spirit. That's the newness Paul's talking about here. Same thing that's mentioned in Romans 6, 4. So again, the point of this release from the Mosaic law is not to live a lawless life. To do whatever we want. We're released from the authority of the law so that we can serve God in a new way. In a way that we were unable to do beforehand. God's people could not do this before. This word serve actually is used of a a slave service. It's the verb form for the word slave. So Paul's actually connecting us back to what he's already said in the last part of chapter 6. Which fits because again he's answering the same question. He's still addressing the same question. So notice how this works. What Jesus did in dying and rising again is that he brought us out from the authority of the law. So it was, again, like a wife is under the authority of her husband. This is what he's describing, until death occurs. That was his illustration for the Mosaic law. God's people were under the authority of the Mosaic law until death occurred. But in our death with Christ, we've been changed. The authority structure's been changed. God's people are now under Christ's authority. That's what he's saying. That's his point. That's why he now makes this comparison to slaves and masters in this last line. Don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying marriage is slavery. It's not slavery. There's two comparisons he's making. But you can see his connection. Because again, comparisons aren't comprehensive. He's just connecting with authority structures. So just as in chapter 6 he said our transfer was... From one master to another, here he's making a comparison with marriage, and he's saying that our transfers from one husband to another. Not to a life of singleness. Not to a life where we're free of any authority structures. The metaphor is that God's people in this era of fallenness, in connection with Adam's sin, 
They were under sin's rule. They were married to the Mosaic law. But then a death occurred. And it ended the law's authority. And now Christ's death makes us, brings us into a marriage then with Christ. So to be freed from the Mosaic law doesn't mean to be free of commandments. It doesn't mean that we're free of God's rules. It just means that Jesus is now the source of our commands. That's what he said in the Great Commission, isn't it? Remember what he said in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe what? The Mosaic law? Law you heard in the Old Testament? No. All that I have commanded you. So that's why Paul could say we're not under the Mosaic law. He wasn't under the Mosaic law. He said he was under the law of Christ. When we put our trust in Jesus, we're not merely putting our trust in a Savior. We are putting our trust in the Lord. So what does that mean for us? It means that we are now, we are now dead to the Mosaic law, but wed to Christ. What about the Old Testament laws then? What do we do with those? What about the Ten Commandments? Paul is going to go on to show that the law is still perfect. Just as David said in Psalm 19, it was perfect for its purpose and for its continued purpose. But what we need to understand is Paul is not just saying, well, you know, Jesus, he fulfilled the ceremonial laws and he fulfilled the civil laws, but he didn't fulfill the moral laws. And so that's why those still apply to us. Jesus doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say that. There's not a single Jewish person in the first century that would have said that. Those divisions of ceremonial, civil, moral, those are what Christians came up with later as they were trying to understand how we relate to the Old Testament, even though Paul's told us clearly here how we relate. So we don't have to divide the Old Covenant law into these these three different sections or something the Old Testament never did. The Old Testament never divided the law into ceremonial, civil, and moral. It couldn't. Let's take an example. What division does this law fit into? You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Obscure, isn't it? It's listed three times. Twice in Exodus, once in Deuteronomy. Where do you put it? Do you put it under ceremonial? Well, goats and goat milk is actually clean. Restriction wouldn't be, don't eat this because it's unclean. Is it, is it moral? Is he talking about animal rights? Or is it a picture? It's pointing to something else that maybe we'll get in one day when we get to Exodus. But for now, it just shows you, you you can't divide things into ceremonial, civil, moral in every case. We don't need to do that. The Bible never does that. Paul says we're completely severed from the Mosaic law in toto. We, We died with respect to the law as a whole. The the Mosaic law was given for use under the old covenant. That came, that covenant became obsolete when Jesus arrived and established a new covenant by his death and resurrection. That's exactly what Hebrews 8, 13 says. The laws in Exodus through Deuteronomy, they were given to regulate God's people under the old covenant before Christ. And it was perfect for that situation. A situation where God's people as a whole were ruled by sin. Before Christ came to free them. That doesn't mean that there weren't any individuals in Israel who bore the evidence of God's grace. 
Doesn't even mean that there, were, there weren't generations that fared better under better leadership. The, the point is that God's people as a whole were ruled by the letter of the law, not by the Spirit. Moses longed for the day when God's people would be, would be ruled by the Spirit. Told Joshua with reference to all the Lord's people and using language that actually sounds very similar to Pentecost. He said, would that the Lord would put his spirit on them, all of his people. Wasn't the case then. That's what God promised, that all his people would know him by his spirit, according to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So in a context where God's people were ruled by sin, the Mosaic law had its pictures and patterns that pointed forward And that was perfect for the situation. Through the law, God really did reveal his holiness. And he revealed the holiness that is required of God's people. Through laws like regulating what you eat, clean and unclean foods. God was actually demonstrating, picturing how they are to be holy as he is holy. Remember what they're allowed to sacrifice. Only clean foods. And they're allowed to only consume the same. That was a picture of of being holy as God is holy. But it was only going to come to fruition through Christ. So does that mean that we're not under the Ten Commandments? I think Douglas Moo answers this question really well. He said, yes, in the sense that those commandments as part of the Mosaic law no longer stand over us, but no, in the sense that the teaching of nine of the Ten Commandments is explicitly taken up by New Testament authors and made part of the law of Christ. goes on to say, what all this means in practice then is that we should look to the New Testament for those commandments that express God's moral will for us as new covenant Christians. So even when Paul teaches about what the moral law requires of us. He does include teaching that, that is founded on Old Testament laws. You see that in the first chapter of Romans. It talks about things that are based on, he even uses wording from Leviticus. He's not being inconsistent. Because again, the law did point to God's holiness. It did point to holy living, but sometimes it did so directly, sometimes it did so indirectly. Under its situation in the Old Covenant, it was perfectly followed in that authoritative sense. But now that Christ has come, now that the New Covenant has arrived, now that there is fulfillment of the law, not just in Jesus obeying it, but also, remember Matthew 5, Jesus told us what the law was pointing to. He taught us about how he fulfills the law, how he shows us what these laws are really pointing to, what their intentions really were in Matthew 5. So now, under this new covenant era, we we actually follow and submit to the fulfillment of the Mosaic law, which is the law of Christ, the law that he commands us in Matthew 28. So what we're doing in the New Testament, we follow the New Testament's instruction on how the Old Testament applies to us. Now that Christ has come, we don't simply just try to apply the Old Testament exactly as it was applied under the old covenant because Christ has changed that and Christ and his apostles and prophets, they taught us how we then understand that connection. That's what Paul's doing here. So that means that we want to pay attention to what the New Testament does and does not carry over. 
to our situation. It does not carry over. The New Testament does not carry over Sabbaths and sanctuaries. The New Testament does not tell us that this is a sanctuary that we're in and that we need to actually carry out uh, the Sabbath. It doesn't direct us to do that. The New Testament directs us to treat our bodies as sanctuaries of the Spirit. It should not be joined to what is sinful. And it tells us to treat our church body the same way. Not the building, but the people. We are the sanctuary. So that's why I'm very deliberate in never referring to this room as a sanctuary. It's not a sanctuary. You might not be happy with auditorium. Call it a meeting house, a meeting room. Call it something else. But, you know, we're not reenacting a Sabbath gathering. Partly because they didn't meet together on Sabbath most of the time. Something different's happening right now. And the New Testament teaching doesn't carry over sacrifices or tithes. In our New Covenant situation, our sacrifice, Paul says, is our lives. He's going to say that in chapter 12. So we're not under the letter of the law of tithing. We're walking in the Spirit. And what that means is we're living life generously. We, we live a life of generosity to those both within the church and outside of the church. So we don't check off these rules, these outward conformity to these rules. Our obedience comes from a transformed heart, a new covenant, transformed heart with the Spirit of God in us. And that means that we don't give begrudgingly. We do, we do give, not to check off, I have my tithe. We give generously because the Spirit of God has changed us. So, friend, if, you, if you're here today and all this seems over your head, you came just wondering what Jesus has to do with you. Understand what the main takeaway is in all of this for you. You're under the power of sin. You're not free, like you may imagine yourself to be. And that means that anytime you try to do what's right, you do that because you think it's in your own best interest. That's why you're doing what's right, trying to do what's right. And what the Bible says is that the only way to truly do what's right is to, first of all, love God. To love him with your whole heart. You cannot do what is right if you don't. You cannot truly love others if you don't love God first. So, Jesus came to actually make that happen in the lives of everyone who trusts in him to begin to do it progressively over time. But until you see your sinfulness, until you see that you can't do that, you can't turn from your sin and trust in him until you recognize your situation. So that's what this passage is about for you. How Jesus saves us from ourselves. That's what you need to believe. That by his death and resurrection, He did that for you. He rescued you from yourself. That's what you need to believe. And then you live in light of that. When Jesus saves us by his death and resurrection, he did it to change our lives. Is that true of you? Have you died with Christ and been raised with him? We have a sign in our house that says uh, all about that grace. It's a sign that the Christmases gave us. It's a good sign. Sometimes, though, when people say things like that, all about grace, they kind of mean it's not about rules. I can do whatever I want. 
It's about grace. Grace means that I don't have to submit to some law or rules. That's not what grace means. If you experience the grace of dying and rising with Christ, you really did die to the old era. You died to that era where sin ruled, where the Mosaic law churned out rebels. You died to it completely, but you were joined to Christ to submit to him and to live as one who has the Holy Spirit. So live that way. Join me in prayer. We, we cannot put these words into practice, Spirit, without your work. So Holy Spirit, we, we, we end by acknowledging the reality that you are at work in the life of everyone. You've, you've caused them to be born again. And that we are ever dependent on your work in us from then and forward. You are the one who causes us to pay attention to these truths. You're the one who causes us to even want to obey. You're the one who produces this in us. It is the fruit that you bring about in our life, the fruit of the Spirit. So in no way, no way let us think that we're going to try really hard now to love, to be joyful and peaceful. But we would instead recognize and depend on you fully, even as we take steps of faith to apply this truth that we, we ought to have a different life that we would bear your fruit, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Acknowledging all the way that it is not us. It is by our fellowship with you. To help us to to put this, this into practice, to not try to follow rules like we're checking things off a list. Say, I kept that one, I kept that one, I kept that one. Look at me. Help us to see that we, we are now joined to Christ so that we can live a new life through you, through your work in our life. That we'd be humbled by that. We would not look down on others. At the same time, anyone here, we ask that you would open their eyes to pay attention to this good news as you did with Lydia in Acts. They would turn and trust in Jesus. They would recognize by your conviction of sin and righteousness, they are sinful that they need him. That you cause them to be born again, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Amen.